Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. Today, we're going to have a conversation that takes a slight turn from our recent talks as we open a dialogue about the trauma that is associated with gang involvement. You might reasonably ask why we would engage in conversation about gangs on a podcast about children's mental health. Gangs are not the first line of thought when we think about youth with mental health struggles, and they're not typically a population that engenders a great deal of sympathy. Perhaps that should change if we want to address the issue of gang violence in our neighborhoods. According to the National Youth Gang Survey, two out of every five active gang members are juveniles, and therefore particularly vulnerable to the pressures and traumas associated with gang affiliation and community violence. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network reports that early trauma and traumatic stress reactions can increase a youth's vulnerability to becoming involved with a gang. We've spoken at some length in prior episodes about the impact that early trauma has on a child's ability to regulate their emotions, experience success in school, and form sustaining interpersonal relationships with adults and peers. A traumatized child is more likely to be hypervigilant and fearful and may experience feelings of hopelessness about the future as their trauma reactions continually interfere with their ability to experience success. As this relates to gangs, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network explains, while traumatic stress is certainly not the sole cause for gang involvement and delinquency, it can increase a youth's vulnerability to a gang's appeal Gangs can offer a sense of safety, control, and structure often missing in the lives of traumatized youth. Gangs offer traumatized youth an opportunity to experience affirmation, often for the first time. These are children who've not had a family, community, or society that is able to protect and provide for them, to offer them a vision of a positive future. The gang then steps in to fill that role. The Painted Brain points out that living in gang-impacted communities by itself is trauma-inducing for those who live there. Residents of gang-impacted neighborhoods are often quite vulnerable to developing post-traumatic stress disorder, or as the Painted Brain calls it, post-traumatic street disorder. Residents of these communities are exposed to constant violence and other acts of delinquency that impact their mental well-being. 
Imagine being a child and hearing regular gunshots, knowing people who were killed in gang warfare, or walking to school through the daily aftermath of community violence. It should be no surprise that these children are vulnerable. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry wrote in 2016 that vulnerable children as young as elementary school are being recruited into gangs and that, once there, their exposure to trauma-inducing experiences increases exponentially. These very young children are compelled to commit acts of violence to join the gang and then are exposed to drugs, alcohol, age-inappropriate non-consensual sex, and isolation from school and family. The trauma exposure continues with devastating consequence. Today we have the great honor of speaking with Luis Javier Rodriguez. Luis is a poet, novelist, journalist, and community activist. He was named the 2014 Los Angeles Poet Laureate by Mayor Eric Garcetti. He's perhaps best known for his memoir, Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in LA, for which he received the Carl Sandburg Literary Award. Luis is also the founder of the Tia Chucha Press and the Tia Chucha Cultural Center. Despite his success today, Luis was an active gang member and heroin user in the early 1960s and 1970s in Los Angeles. He dropped out of high school at 15 and was arrested numerous times as a juvenile. He spent time on Murderer's Row, housed next to Charles Manson, and at 17 had been arrested for assault with intent to commit murder, although not convicted. Arrested again at 18, his sentence was mitigated by letters of support from community members who saw potential in him. With gratitude, he committed to recovering from his heroin usage and became a community advocate. Welcome, Luis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for our listeners here, today is the first time I'm meeting Luis. Uh, we were introduced by a family a friend of his, Mickey Prince, who's a therapist at the Guidance Center. They were, in fact, our very first podcast guest and thought that Luis would be a welcome guest as well. So for our benefit, please, would you say a few words about yourself? Introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, thank you for having me here. Um, I'm Luis Rodriguez. I have been, um, I've written 16 books. But many of them have to do with my um, life as a gang member, heroin addict, in and out of jails when I was a, a youth, and how I got over it. I mean, I didn't get over it, like get over it, but what I had to do to overcome a lot of these. And then the story is that my own son joined the gang at 15, got into a lot of trouble. He took us through hell and back, as they say, prison mm. for 13 and a half years. But we stayed very close. So there's a story about a father and son coming close together. He's been out of prison for, I would say, almost 12 years, and he's doing wow. So that's partly the story. I work with gang kids for 50 years after I got out of gangs and drugs. I work with them. I've, I've been going to prisons for 40 years, so I've been doing this work for quite a long time. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm eager to learn more. And, you know, let's just lay it out uh, on the line. For most people, gang members are not a population that engenders a whole lot of empathy. 
we think about the violence, the danger that they bring to our communities, less so about the personal tragedies behind um, that gang membership. So if you would, wouldn't mind, could you please talk a little bit about what led to your joining a gang? Like what was happening in your life and in your community that made a gang appealing to you? Well, first I want to say that it's uh, very important for people to know that there's an environment that gangs flourish in. And that environment is usually either abandonment from family, loss of some great, you know, personal thing, uh, um, you know, uh, trauma, and poverty. Poverty is a really important part of the story. Um, people who are poor, especially in the industrial period and the post-industrial period, that joined gangs, joined because they were in an environment in which they were being pushed out of a real um, a real life. And what I mean by that is gangs come out of that industrial world. So the first gangs in the U.S. were uh, immigrants from Europe, Irish and Eastern European and Germans. A lot of, they were all the first gangs. And then you realize there's a gang thing that happens when poverty stays with black people, brown people, Asians, anybody that's come into that world. So, so I, that's the first thing. What happens when you're poor is, uh, you, you, you know, you get deprived material things but you eventually, some people get a deprivation of um, spiritual things. You know, they feel very empty. The, the material thing begins to not, begins to be coming into you as, I'm empty. You know, I don't got what I need. And then, of course, if your family is struggling and fathers and mother are working two or three jobs, or maybe you don't have a father, maybe the mother feels mental illness in the home, then it's just going to contribute to you saying, I need to get out of this. And a gang is a perfect place because you're in with lost boys. And I say boys because mostly they're men. There are girl gangs, but mostly it's young men. And uh, the lost boys find each other. And then they begin to work on each other. You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. begin each other. They begin to give those names. Something that community used to do indigenous communities or previous communities they used to do this stuff for these men and women uh, and help them grow and help them mature but now the gangs do it without that eldership without that knowledge uh then you throw in things like guns guns come in then you throw in things like drugs and you're creating a perfect uh storm of of ingredients that will create in many cases a very violent very detached human being in a gang so the the risk factors, what I'm hearing you say that might make a child vulnerable would, and I am going to say child because that is when it it starts, um, are sort of a lack of affiliation, a lack of nurturing in their lives, poverty, and, um, and by nurturing I mean both emotional, spiritual, as well as the physical, the food, having adequate housing, all of those things. It's it's um, a vacancy that makes them vulnerable. Okay, and I'll give my particular, uh, I joined a gang that was part of a neighborhood that was a Mexican migrant community in the San Gabriel Valley. There was a hundred of them. They were the ones that came in the 40s. First, it was the so-called Okies and Arkies, the white poor from the Dust Belt, uh, bow. They came into these neighborhoods and picked the oranges and the walnuts and whatever was happening there. In the 40s, it became all Mexican. And, uh, but by the time I moved in there in the late 60s, 60s and 70s, all that orange groves were gone, the walnuts were gone. And now both the neighborhoods are still there. There were dirt, dirt roads, 
no sidewalks, goats and chickens in people's backyards. Uh, if you ever know, if you ever know Appalachia, I've been to Appalachia. It looks like Appalachia, only more denser, small mm -hmm. homes. But we were surrounded when I got there by these well-off white suburbs. So not only do you feel the deprivation, but you can see other people have it better. And it was racial and class. You see how these dynamics are playing. And then because we were the Mexicans and nobody liked, the sheriff's deputies were their army. That's the way I would say. They're big gang against the rest of us. And they would do terrible things, beat you up, you know, set you up. Uh, they killed uh, people when they needed to. They killed four of my friends unarmed. You know, this is the life of the ghetto body or whatever it might be, the reservation of people who go through these things. And it begins to um, change a young person. I didn't start off a gang member or a criminal or a heroin addict. I was a young kid like everybody else. I was a very sensitive kid. Uh, and I, I, I had a lot of sensitivities. and I like to play in my imagination and my mind. But that wasn't cool in the barrio. You know, you have to be in the street. You have to be tough. And at one time I was beaten down when I was nine years old. Uh, and they humiliated me. In fact, they cracked my jaw. I didn't break it, but they cracked it. So I have a big, uh, the jaw went backwards and it's still there. I only got three places my teeth meet. But when I was growing up at nine years old, I was whole humiliated and I promised myself I would never be on that ground again. And mm -hmm. uh, later I joined the gang. I was 11 years old. It was a child. It was a child's mental incapacity to think further. I made a decision to join the gang. At 12 years, I started doing drugs. Um, you know, I started even heroin, but I didn't use heroin intravenously until I was 15. But we use heroin, putting it on, on your cigarettes and your marijuana, uh, skin popping it, all kinds of ways, snorting it. You know what I mean? Heroin was everywhere. Why? You were 12 when you started using it, you said? Yeah, but I used it when I was 15. It's just hard to get my brain around that. Um, it, it really is. It's hard to get my brain around a 12-year-old doing that. In the 60s and 70s, every poor neighborhood in the I want to talk about poor, I mean, mostly black and brown. There was whites, too, uh, in the reservation. We were all in this world that nobody knew about, nobody cared about, nobody wrote about. Nowadays, everybody's writing about gangs and everything, but they don't realize that the seeds were planted in that period. And... Um, I fell into that world. I was so empty. Give me drugs. Give me everything. Let's do crime. Not everybody in the gang is going to be a drug user or a criminal or violent, but there was always that core, you know, that was like game. And I was one of those people. I'm game because I had, I'm never going to be humiliated. So I'm, I took on everybody, you know, and, uh, and my rage would come out because even though I stole, I, I did drugs, I got arrested for violent acts mostly, you know, uh, when I was 16, I was on murder's roll. When I was 17, I was arrested for attempted murder. And at 18, the last time I actually served time, uh, they got me for assaulting police officers. My rage was what undermined my criminal life. Because I would just be raging at people all the time. And I had to learn to address that because it was also behind my heroin use. It was also behind being homeless in the street. My parents kicked me out of the house. I was homeless for three years. It was behind a lot of this misery that I put myself in. You know what I mean? I, and, and I learned years ago, addiction, a lot of addiction is addiction to misery. You know, I want to tell you a, a story of a client I treated once uh, some time ago now. This was in the early 90s, actually, which was a pretty heavy period in terms of gang activity in Los Angeles. Um, this was a little boy. He was nine. He was African-American. Um, lived near uh, USC. Um, he uh, 
came to me for treatment, he was court ordered uh, because his father had been killed in, in street violence. His stepfather was abusive. So they were ordered to therapy and he was ordered out of the home that lots of gay, which made him safer perhaps, but now they didn't have, mom was alone trying to put food on the table and pay rent. Mom had three jobs, um, very traumatized kid from his abuse, from his dad's death. He was nine. He looked like he was 15, huge kid. He was, he, his dad was six, eight, huge kid. The gangs wanted him. So walking home from school, he'd get beat up. Um, because they were trying to recruit him. This kid was terrified. He was terrified all the time. Um, and the panic and the anxiety was, how are we going to keep this kid safe where it doesn't feel like gangs are the only option for him? Unfortunately, uh, the LA riots happened at this time. This was 92 and they discontinued treatment. So I don't actually know the end of his story, but I'm curious how his story resonates with you. Cause it doesn't sound that different from what you told me about your story that you were getting beat up. They're trying to recruit you. You were lost. Does this, does this story sort of ring a bell with you? The only difference is this. Nobody was trying to recruit me. I joined willingly. I, I, but why did I join? I felt so empty and broken down. The gang seemed to be power and respect. And I was 11 years old and broken down kid. You know, I saw what happened is uh, these Cholo gang members, you know, Cholos. You know, sure. Broke through the elementary school I was at to beat up some guys, but they were tough. They had their Cholo wear, the khaki pants, the big penitents. They were, they came down there with, sticks and bats and chains and they scared everybody the teachers got scared and i looked at that and i go man i wish i had that power you know i was so broken down i said man i, I want i want to be like these guys everybody's scared of them people respect them so i joined the gang soon after and that and eventually i did get that respect you know what, what i wanted to explain was um i joined the gang because i really needed i felt to be among this group of people that everybody feared. And again, that's because of my own brokenness. And um, and then I became somebody that people feared. And that, and that was power. You know what I'm saying? It's, a, yeah. it's not really what it should be. I Again, I was a sensitive young male um, with a lot of feminine energy. But when you're in the body, men have to be men. You gotta be, so being tough, that was... But it was a mutation of who I was. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I do know what you mean. The best uh, defense is a good offense, right? You attack out before they can hurt you. I, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. So, you know, as I was reading for today, I read this quote in The Painted Brain, and it said, violence is at the core of the gang lifestyle, and it places young people in a unique position as both perpetrator and victim. That that's a confusing place to be when we're talking about recovery too. Like, could you talk about sort of the ongoing trauma led you to want to be in a gang, but then there's ongoing traumatic experiences. What once you're there, what does that do to a person living that way? Well, you know, I think it keeps you acute, keeps you very sharp. And you know how it is when you're just like, you got to be sharp. You got to be think quick. Um, bullets are flying, people are jumping on you. You don't know what you're looking at behind your back. 
you know, it it forces you to be constantly in an adrenaline rush, as you know, and that becomes almost addictive in itself. Um, and I tell people that what happens in the gang is that rush keeps a lot of us young boys, instead of playing football or doing other stuff that maybe we get it some other way, we get it through the gang. And there's most gang life is, and I tell you even now, and again, I've been working with gangs a long time. I agree the 90s was like the worst period. But even then, most gang life is boring. You know, most mm -hmm. to do. But when things happen, you're alive. You know, bullets are flying. People are fighting. People, you're you're perpetrating these. Or even you have to steal. What you're drilling, rush. You get you get. Then you get addicted to. I need that again. The boring life gets picked up very quickly with rough things. And the other part of it, I think, is unfortunately a lot of these gangs are death cults. What I mean by that is, I didn't know this at the time, but. Dying keeps the gang alive. Either your homie's dying or somebody else dying. That's what's what constantly kept us in, alive. You know what I'm trying to say. And especially when guns were there. But even when my homies overdosed and they died, it broke our hearts. And, you know, but we were all still using. We were all setting people up. We were all setting people up to die. You know what I'm saying? You go out there and you stand in the corners and give out the gang name and, you know, bullets be flying towards me. It's a death cult that we don't always understand. When you say the deaths kept the gang well, alive, I'm not sure I dies, get what you mean by that. We're all sad, and then we're angry. We got to get revenge. You know what I'm saying? This is more alive. I like see. I said, most of the gang I life see. is boring. You know? But then those got those moments. And, hey, my homie just got beaten down down the block. Well, let's go get these people that did it. You know what I mean? And now we're all alive. We're all there. We're all going. And then we all rush to the scene. Uh, that's... That's what I mean. It keeps us going, this adrenaline rush, which I think the heroin, believe it or not, mediated it because the heroin puts you in another place, uh, euphoric kind of a numbness to a lot of this stuff, you know. And in many ways, I hate to say this, but heroin and even marijuana and some of the other drugs stopped a lot of violence. People think it only contributes to violence because you're fighting mm. for turf or who's going to sell which drugs and everything. But for a lot of us guys, it was our medication. We even called it medicine. It's not medicine. You know, we use words that now people say, that's what you guys were doing, self-medicating. But we used to call it medicine. You know, we knew instinctively this is how we're going to get through this world, wow. this life. So that contributes to the use of drugs just to keep going. Or even drinking. Some people are, oh, this is drinking. So the deaths, it sounds like, and this is really interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way, but it makes perfect sense. Um, if one of your, your homies, as you said, was killed or hurt by a rival gang, not only is it then something to do, it gives you that adrenaline rush, but it also increases your connection to each other because you have a common cause then, don't you? So it increases your affiliation to each other. So it makes the gang connection and then also that much more necessary. Uh, embed in you, your gang is everything. I'm going to fight, die, and live for this gang. It distorts your idea about what life is. You know, when people think, I'm going to live and die for my body, or they're distorting, what about family and community? What about your future? No, everything falls into this one thing, my body or nothing. Everything, this is all that matters. And then, you know, and you think about all these kids like that and all these values saying that to the about their neighborhoods then you can see how everybody gets caught up in this web we call it la vida loca but to me it's a spider web of the crazy life that we all fall into 
And it's a spider web, not in, in that we're a fly, we're actually the spider in it. We're the spider that weaves ourselves deeper and deeper into that web. You know, I, uh, I'm very familiar with homeboys. Um, I'm sure you have probably crossed paths with Father Boyle at some point. Yeah, a remarkable man. But I was meeting with them there once with a group of, of their clients, of their homeboys. And one of them said something to me. Um, it's not just recovering from the trauma you've experienced. That that was hard work. But the harder work was to recover from the trauma that you inflicted. To really dig into therapy and address the hurt that you caused other people. Um, so, you know, how much more complicated is it to recover from that? That it's not just the trauma you witnessed, so in my work but prisons, it's what you I did. I work with high security prisons, mostly murderers, murderers, uh, gang members. Um, the last prison was here in Lancaster, the California State Prison that's in LA County. Um, and B Yard is the general population yard, but it's of these guys who have murdered some of them are never getting out life with possibly, possibly parole but they were in my classes and we address this issue not by doing it directly i am not a trained therapist i don't claim to be and i don't want but i use writing and poetry to help bring out these to evoke a lot of the depth of their pain and then i give them closure through the kind of writing and expression that will allow it to be addressed properly um and i think that's valuable in that it's not about making them feel terrible, they really feel terrible. It's not about people like remorse and all these things that, uh, guilt and all these things that I think have a lot of, there's problems to all that, but it is a reckoning. You know, you have to reckon with what you've done. You have to wake up to, hey, you know what? I can contribute terrible things or beautiful things. I say it's the blessings or the curses. All your pain can either be a blessing, all your traumas, or they become curses. What are you going to make it? In other words, everything you go through is like the hero's journey. You know, everything you go through, there's an end to it. And your pains and your sufferings, you know, like the Odyssey and the Odysseus went through so much trying to get back from the Trojan War, right? Came just to get back home. And he, all his crew gets killed. They meet, you know, Cyclopses and animals and whirlwinds and meet everything. But he comes back. Now he's a hero in that he has to bless. Everything he's been through will help bless the world that he's entered. And that's kind of like I tell people, you've been through Helen Back, as I said, you've been there, you've done terrible things, but you can either keep carrying that pain and curse people and hurt people and keep, you know, don't talk to your kids, knock down your own family, whatever, or you can start saying, whatever I've been through, I'm going to bless this world with what I know, my wisdom, my, what I've learned, maybe I can help somebody, maybe I can mentor somebody, you know what I mean? That's what I try to transform that so that they don't feel just this terrible hate and and uh, guilt, but they start transforming it to, I can help somebody else. That's incredibly moving to hear you say that. I, I'm very, very moved at that. I'm curious how you got to that place. I mean, you were so young and how did you get to the place of, I don't want to, I don't want to be this anymore. I want to bring a different value to the world around me. How did you get to that place? I'm very fortunate. Um, we were, this My neighborhood was nobody cared about it. There was nothing there. But somebody had the idea to create a community center. Who had this idea? I don't know. 
and they brought in this youth guy. He became my mentor, and he was part of the Chicano movement. And this is very helpful because Chicano movement had a vision. We got to better our communities. We stop. We should stop killing each other. We should, you know, get educated. They were giving us a vision of better yourself, educate yourself. I had no clue what they were talking about. I had no interest in it. But what this guy did, he saw the value in me that I couldn't see. I would do this great graffiti pieces, and even though people think Cholo writing is tagging, it's not. That's great art. It's vandalism, darn you. <laughs> but some great art. And he looked at it and said, why don't you learn to paint murals? I didn't know what he was talking about, but that was a great idea. And then he saw that I was a dropout, and he says, let's make a deal. you know, Because in the barrio, even, well, I don't know about now, but then it was your palabra was everything. He says, if I help you get learn paint murals, you go back to school. He was constantly making deals with me that were good. And I was going to be my word. If he was going to be his word, I was going to be my word. And we kept exchanging this way to the point that <clears throat> last time I was in jail, uh, he wasn't there. I had to address all the issues in, in the jail that I was in. I'm either going to be heavy-duty gangster here or I'm going to figure out my own way. And I started my heroin withdrawals in the county jail because I didn't wow. want I didn't want to be used by everybody. I could see the world I'm entering. And I said, I'm going to have to do this on my terms. This is where he had taught me, you know. And lucky for me, I just did the county jail time because the community came out on my behalf. They came to the court. Look, this guy's in trouble, but he's doing some good things. And the judge even said, okay, I'll give him time. I was supposed to serve a minimum of six years in state prison. They gave me the county jail. I got convicted, served that. I walked out, and I never looked back. It was like the, what, the seed that he had planted. These activistas, these movimiento people, this vision kept me going for the rest of my life. Now, I still had, I let go of heroin and I drank for 20 years. So I've only been sober for 29 years this year, but that's because the drinking happened. But it's a process. And what I have to say that what that seed was nurtured, got nurtured. And that's important. Uh, people sometimes get it to religion. You know, they get it to Christian or other things. They get it all kinds of ways. Art is a great way to change your life. And I'm fortunate that I met these social justice activists at the right time. I think it's an amazing story about how one person does have the ability to change someone's life or to help them on that path. I think that's just a beautiful story. You know, we've touched on this a little bit, but I do think we forget how truly young so many gang members are. And to some degree, you know, it's just easier as a society, it shouldn't be this way, but it's easier to think of them as scary um, rather than as troubled young men. Um, we think of them as hardened criminals and they're babies. And I'll re I remember once, again, this was in the 90s. So, you know, like you, I'm older, <laughs> but I was uh, seeing a client at Marina Del Rey Middle School and uh, as we were leaving the school, school was out, kids were all leaving for the day. And I was there on campus and there was a bike by shooting. Um, and a young boy was shot in the head and killed right there, right in front of us. And I was, of course, the devastation of that. But I was so struck, too, that it was a bike by because the people who shot him weren't old enough to drive yet. And we were at a middle school and that stayed with me that, that it was a bike by that. That's how young these babies were. So, you know, can you 
you saw things and did things at such a crazy young age. What did that feel like to see that you, I'm sure you saw shootings. I'm sure, you know, countless people who were killed by gunfire. Um, as you said, you took heroin at 12. What? I'm a parent. I have my sons are 18 now, but I think when they were 12, they were babies. Their life and your life couldn't have been more different. What did it feel like to see those things and do those things that you did at such a terribly young age? Uh, you know, one thing that uh, I had 18 friends, I mean, 25 friends died by the time I was 18 years old. And so I carried all my losses. All my best friends were gone. My best homies were all dead. Um, I didn't want no more friends. <laughs> you know, I didn't want yeah. to. I just, I, I couldn't hold on to relationships. My family was gone. You know, you you get to the point that you have, end up, as I say in one of my books, you end up having to face your inner face. You end up having to look at yourself now because you got nowhere else to look. Nobody's there. I didn't have a father that guided me. And my father was a very cold, detached, emotionless father. You know, these kind of dads, you know. Sure. You know, they, they, they run the household, but they don't do nothing other than just, you know, don't, you know, don't do nothing. You know, they don't tell you what to do. And my poor mom carried all the emotional burden and the load, and she just went crazy. She beat us up. She, and I, I get it. You know, she, she, she could, didn't know what to do. And uh, with me, it was like better to get rid of them because we lost one. We don't want to lose the other ones. None of my brothers and sisters joined a gang or got into drugs. I'm the only one. But they thought getting rid of me was maybe we'll save the others. You know how that goes. So you start feeling like I'm not important. But then when you don't have anything, when you're in the street, when you're homeless or sitting in a jail cell, and then you have to look in that inner face, that's what happened with me. I have to think about what I'm going to do. It doesn't happen to everybody. Some people go through this and never get it. But now I have to think about And I'm glad that I had a mentor that could plant a seed or give me an idea, a vision, social justice. Or, you know, I was actually hungry for that. I didn't know how hungry it was for change. I didn't know that I could be a change. Uh, but that's what they were inculcating in me. And so I looked at in my inner face and I realized I'm not going to go this way no more. It could have been. I'm going that way. And that's important because a lot of people get it anyway, but they usually do it at different times in their life. Like some of these guys sitting in prison 40 years, they finally get it, sometimes younger. You know, my son says that when he did the time in prison, prison saved his life because it got him, even though he hated prison, prison didn't do anything in particular to save his life. It was just that he was out of the street, that violence, that ongoing thing, and he had to reflect and reflect. And, 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 he, had, and he said, I decided to look at my interface too and see where am I going to go. So I think that's a process I try to introduce to people so that they don't, they look in that mirror. I'll have to tell you something sad. I have a granddaughter, she's 28 years old. She's been on crystal meth for five or six years. She's prostituted herself. She's now in jail right now. And the last time I talked to her, because she doesn't talk to me very often, because she knows I have answers. And right now she's not, you know what I mean? She's stuck mm -hmm. in the, you know. But I told her, look at because she was complaining that her dad, my son, and others are telling her, get recovery, get help. She's tired of people telling her what to do. And I tell her, you don't have to listen to anybody. You have to listen to me. The only person you have to listen to is that face in that mirror. And if you don't love that person, there's nothing we can do. You got to love that person in that mirror because that's the only thing that's going to help you get through this. Recovery programs are tools. They're not the answer. The answer is inside you. They're just all good to have and tools. And she was complaining about this recovery program. You know what? Don't worry about it. They're just 
they're going to help you or they don't. But you're the one that has to make that decision. And that's hard for people to get. Because you know how disempowered we are to, to know that? To me, that was the, it's called owning your life. And it's hard to tell people who turn their life over to gangs, to drugs, to prostitution, whatever. My, turn their life over to say, now I'm going to own my life. That's something we don't teach our kids very well in these streets. Owning your life, it's powerful. But that's what I try to convey when I talk to gang kids and or people in prison. That's the thing that I have to do, own my life every step of the way. I find that really moving too. That's really powerful. Still working with her. I love her dearly. I will always help her. She's not in good shape right now. She's sitting in jail. She might do prison time, but she's she's not done. There's a lot more in this world she can do. She has more story left. You know, there there are some who will say, I'll reserve my energy or my compassion for those kids who grew up in your neighborhood with you, perhaps, Luis, but didn't join a gang. How would you respond to them? Well, I, here's what I learned. All these kids are in trouble. They just had different ways of expressing it. For example, my wife grew up in a rough neighborhood, Chichicana, 11 siblings, you know, 11 people in her family, uh, kids. Um, she hid away and became invisible. You know what I'm saying? She mm-hmm. was she didn't know how to tell the world, you know, because the rest of the world was speaking. Like a lot of these guys, they're the ones overturning the tables. She didn't want to be seen. So she would go to school, get her grades, she got good grades. She was these little Chicanas with the with the books that she would hold like this, you know, how they would walk to school, you know. They trying to, but they're hiding. There's another pain. That, so I say, yes, go work with the ones that aren't in gangs. They all need help, but make sure you properly interact with them, what they need. Hear their voices, hear their stories. What are they looking for? You know, I love uh, Sandra Cisneros' book, House on Mango Street, because it's about that kind of girl. A girl that wasn't a gang kid, she wasn't on drugs, but she was lost in a working-class Mexican community of Chicago. You know how People can be lost in them. So I, I just say, just do what's adequate to what the kids are. Now, if you're working with gang kids, that that's that, that takes a lot. And then I know people that can do it and some that can't. You know, you got to know how to work with these kids. You got to have a lot. Like this one mentor, I don't know how he knew to help me. He helped me perfectly. How he did it, I don't even think he went to school. <laughs> he might have had an instinct for it. But uh, the idea is every kid needs different needs. So I'll say, you know, work with those kids, and but give them the needs they need. They need. And every once in a while, if you see a kid who's totally together, bright and great, help them, help them get better. You know, I think all young people need help. I wouldn't pit one against the other. But the traumatized kids, there are many of them. We need to do what we can to help them. And it can't just be a personal thing, even though personal responsibility is part of it. It's what are you going to do in society to make society responsible for its end? Because they're all feeding on each other right now, and that's and that we need to bring both ends together. Despite the awareness that children growing up in gang-involved communities are exposed to overwhelming daily traumas, there are very few evidence-based practices that are specifically developed to treat this population. This is particularly true when discussing children of color from already disenfranchised populations. Doctors Julie Gamian and Monica Skews have found that there are only two evidence-based treatments for trauma that have been culturally adapted for the native populations and other people of color. They write, 
The limited research on culturally adapted interventions is concerning, as researchers have argued that mental health care providers have a moral and ethical responsibility to provide effective interventions for minority groups that reflect cultural values and contexts relevant to health and well-being. The American Psychiatric Association has published guidelines for better treating and understanding trauma within disenfranchised communities of color. This is important if we are to resolve the traumas that can make gang affiliation an attractive option to a developing child in those neighborhoods. Their recommendations are, avoid stereotypes and create a welcoming environment that acknowledges and respects the impact of complex histories and traumas of disenfranchised peoples. Maintain openness and curiosity about patients to facilitate cultural agility and sensitivity. Encourage patients to reconnect with their culture and community to reinforce identity, resilience, and self-esteem, thereby protecting against symptoms of mental illness and PTSD. Use cultural practices as primary and adjunctive treatment. Talking circles and drumming circles are examples that may be useful. Become familiar with cultural customs and acknowledge traditional territory to show cultural humility and sensitivity. Luis, I know you're not a mental health clinician, but you do, you are very active in helping young people like the young man you once were uh, recover from gang violence, from drugs. Um, so you have a lot of knowledge. Uh, what do you think the mental health system gets right? And what do we do wrong in trying to serve this community? They get a lot of things right because since I'm not, um, I do work with a lot of mental health professionals and I do refer kids to them. You know, in other words, they need help. I'd send them to them. Uh, that wasn't the case when I was growing up. By the way, there was no mental health workers in my community. There was really no recovery program. Now they're they're there, so we I utilize them. I try to get people there as much as I can. If we got good resources, Homeboy Industries, a lot of, of course, we can use Homeboy Industries in every neighborhood. That would be the best. Oh, thing. we could. That'd be amazing. I refer them to people who can handle this because, but they have to first be engaged, interested. They have to realize that you really care enough for them. They will walk away from me like I walked away from this guy for the longest time, but I always come back. You know, I'm always there. And when they see that consistency and that caring, I call it not. Uh, uh, scared straight, but cared straight. You know, when they see that consistency and you're there, I can get mad at them. Hey, dude, you didn't show up to the circle we have, but hey, man, it's too bad. But I mean, hey, it gets me mad, but it gets what? The circle's still there. You know what I mean? Then they will, then you can open doors to help them. Um, that I think is important. Everybody needs help, and we got more resources now than ever before. The one thing I would say that people might get wrong is first of all, there's not enough resources. There's too many to fall through the cracks. For all the millions of dollars of resources that we have finally gathered after all these years, there's still not enough. I think more has to be done on the front end with kids when they're babies, growing up in schools, um, mental health care, but also physical, make sure they get food on the table, make sure their families are okay, family dynamics got taken into account. You know, look at these communities and find out where the gaps are. Fill them. I think we got to do more than wait till the kids are in trouble and then you're going to put them in prison for the rest of their life. It's the back-end response. So I, I think that we miss a lot of that by not doing more in the front end and wait till the things get really bad 
and the mental health sometimes come in then. Then you have to do a lot of extra work, but that's, it's what do we do on the front end so the kids don't have to be in those situations? You inadvertently just stepped right up on my soapbox because that is my continual mantra that, you know, like the guidance center, we provide amazing mental health care. I'm so proud of the work we do, but wouldn't it be great if we put enough resources into our communities that kids didn't get to the point that they needed us. Um, it's a skewed system. You just, I'm so happy to share that soapbox with you. If you're in trouble, then resources are coming in. But if you don't make a noise, nobody's paying attention to you. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of kids that are hiding. They're invisible. They're hurting. And then one day you hear them call. They just committed suicide. You say, what? The kid was fine. You don't know. Front end stuff, you know, it, it, all these kids that aren't making the big bracket, what do we do for them, you know, before they get to that point? Right. Now, I read in preparing for today, I read quite a lot about the concept of historical trauma. Um, for our listeners who this may be a new concept, it's this notion of multi generational trauma that's experienced by specific cultural, racial, ethnic groups related to sort of major historical events or oppression, the Holocaust, slavery, war, forced migration, violent colonization. These are all examples. And we see this quite a lot in the Long Beach area, for example, amongst our families from Southeast Asia, from Cambodia, from Vietnam. And uh, we see it in the youth, even though they weren't in Cambodia and Vietnam for the war. It's this historical trauma that's passed down through generations. I'm curious, Luis, what role do you think historical trauma has in your work with gang-affiliated youth? Well, I think it's got a big role because people, you know, my mother and my dad were traumatizing us. Who traumatized them? You know, how do they get the concepts that the father is supposed to be an emotionless code, you know, just bring the money and don't don't bother me. And the mother carries all the emotional burden, you know, which drives her crazy. You know, who created that world? And you go further and further and you realize it is generational. And then, of course, in Mexico, it was the conquest and the colonialization and all the indigenous people, you know, the brown skinned people. We get box and we can't be your Indian. I'd say one thing my mother did do, and I bless her for this. He would always say we were Tarumaras. My mother's from Chihuahua. How many Mexicans tell their kids that? And I want to know, what's a Tarumara? And I never heard of this. And she was the only one. But nobody in my family cared about it but me. I was the only one sitting at her side telling me about these Tarumaras. You know what I'm saying? How many do that? And she was glad that I was interested because she grew up in the ghetto of La Tarumara in Chihuahua City. But she didn't grow up traditional Indian. But she had, was in this ghetto where the Catholic Church would kidnap people and change their clothes and change their names. And she grew up there and she knew she was Tarumara because they were all Tarumara people there, but they didn't know the language, their history. And then of course, she doesn't know who she is. And then she's pissed off with that. She used to tell me when I was a kid, don't be on the sun too long. You're gonna get too dark. You're gonna be, vas a ver, but the vas a ver indio. You know what You're I mean? You're gonna look like an Indian for our English speaking listeners. The store, of course. Where did that come from? My mom, my mom was a brown-skinned woman, and she would not, she would avoid the sun so she wouldn't get darker. You know what I mean? It's like, who comes up with these things? And then you grow up with that. And then you got the racial discrimination in this country because we went all through it. This is why I think uh, it's important to discuss uh, critical race theory uh, because we, it's it's part of our history too. We are still there. I'm telling you, I was in a community. I don't hate white people 
because I'm hate white people. And of course, being part Spanish, I have white in me. It's like, I, I don't hate it. But we were surrounded by white suburbs with a lot of money, a lot of hatred towards us. I mean, okay, that's part of our story. You can't just say it's a personal thing. He's messed up. He's He's got problems. It's all contributes to the story. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you was one other thing. The police were very bad in our community, like all the ghettos and barrios and all the inner cities, 60s and 70s, all the way to, to, to present, as we know. Well, there was a police officer from San Gabriel who was watching George Floyd getting killed. And it traumatized him because he knew police officers just like Derek Chauvin. And one of them was a cop that was terrorizing my community who ended up kidnapping and killing one of the one of the kids from my neighborhood. It was a rival gang, but when I let go of the gang, I went for body of peace. I was working with rival gang members. I was working with this kid in a peace circle. I had a peace circle of all of these rival gang members together, similar to what Father Greg Boyer was doing. I, mean, I was doing it then on my own. And uh, this cop kidnaps him, shoots him, and kills him, and he gets convicted, becomes the first, well, one of the first police officers in California to be convicted for murder. But he got a life sentence 13 years later, People are fighting for his release, fraternal police organizations. Um, David So, the actor of Starsky and Hutch, uh, Governor P. Wilson, and he gets exonerated and gets released. We're carrying this pain of what he had done. He gets released, he becomes a hero. He ends up living to 2007, dies of cancer, you know, but we're carrying this pain. Well, that police officer reached out to a former enemy of mine, who's now a good friend, who lost two sons, and then me. We, we're now we're talking together, former enemies sitting in the diner, sharing the stories about the pain of this one guy. And we want to do a treatment for a movie about this to tell mm -hmm. them this one guy's madness in the police department. Because this police officer's whole battle was to fight against the Derek Shamans of the world. You know what I'm saying? And he struggled very hard. He was a police officer for 30 years. He was a decent guy, even though when people knew him, I'm sure they thought he was just a crazy cop, you know. But he actually hated the cops that were beating down and knocking, setting people up. And now we're working together. I tell this story because there's redemption and there's uh, transcendence in these relationships. And I'm sitting with former enemies. You know, that one guy, former enemy, used to shoot at me. He actually, We have an incident where he shot at me. And I tried to firebomb his house. And here we are having dinner together. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Those kind of journeys. That's, That's kind of crazy. You know that, right? That's kind of a crazy story. I've got to know that these are possibilities. They actually happen all the time, but we don't hear the story. We don't hear the bad, terrible things. We don't hear this great redemptive story that happens quite frequently. And I, I want to emphasize that. All of us can be helped. All of us can be saved. And, uh, and we got to tell more of these stories because more of that happens than people know. You know, I was, again, even the... American Psychiatric Association, I found as I was preparing for today, they've written about the really valid use of culturally normative practices, drumming circles, peace circles, things that you've alluded to. But it's not, you know, I'm a clinician. It's not something that's talked about in therapy school. Um, could you please take some time to talk about the culturally congruent practices you use um, in your work to help people recover? What I did uh, 30 years ago is I went to my indigenous roots. I went to Tarumara land. I went to the Sierra Tarumara in Mexiquawa. I went to among the indigenous people my mother came from. I went to them and they were like, 
they didn't want to talk to me. They don't like strangers. But they also, finally, when I did talk to them, said, well, you look Mexican to us, because they don't call themselves Mexican. They're Raramori, which is what they really are. And people call them Tarumara, but they say, you look Mexican to us. I go, but I got roots, my mother's roots. And they were so happy to hear that. And you know why? Because they said, nobody comes back. Because you're, you're really interested in us, in, our, in your roots? I go, yeah. My mother comes to me. I want to know about you. They said, nobody comes back. That opened the door for me to want to know my whole indigenous life. So I've worked with indigenous people in Lakota. I would bring gang kids from Chicago. I lived in Chicago 15 years and worked with gang kids there during the 90s or in the roughest time and bring them to Pine Ridge in South Dakota to work with elders there. I brought people to the Navajo Red, the Diné people of Arizona. I've been doing that for 30 years. Um, I want, and Chicanos mostly, because they don't, they don't know they're indigenous. And a lot of the indigenous kids, the native kids, are becoming cholos or they're becoming gangsters. You know what I'm saying? I, you should see some of these kids. They, you, you can't tell them the difference between Chicanos and native because they're all cholos now. And they're all, they're all, and I'm trying to get them away from being, I don't mind the cholo culture, but getting away from the violence and everything else. Um, and to know their, their past and they know their tradition. So now these indigenous people in the U.S. have helped a lot of Chicanos get back to who they are. And again, I've gone to Mexico. I have elders down there in Mexico. I have elders among the Pipil in El Salvador, in Guatemala, the Mayan, and even in, among the Quechua, all the way to Peru. I did ceremony there. So this has helped me. It informs what I do. So even though I go to the prisons and I'm doing creative writing, I introduce uh, concepts from indigenous. For example, I introduced this concept of initially in your load, which means face and heart. It's a Mexica Aztec concept that a person is really the combination of what's incense and their appearances. And sometimes it doesn't align. What they show is not what they are. And you want to align. You got to get to the point where your face and heart, you got a white face and a white heart. They're both aligned. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it, you, there's a refinement. We try to show the world, but we always, we might be in disarray inside. You know what I mean? And sometimes it does show. You got, you can see it in people. Oh, this guy's in bad shape. But trying to align that is what makes a person. That's a great concept that even when my, the black um, prisoners that would come, the incarcerated men that would come to my, they got it, you know, they understood. Christians would come and they get it. Because I don't do this as a religion. I'm against all, I'm not against any religion. I'm, I use it with everybody and it works. So this, in, in the talking circle, the healing circles, we do that in my creative writing. We get them in a circle and we say, you get to speak, you get to be heard. All these things are possible, very powerful tools. Just like I think, uh, even the, the the therapy and if there's tools, very powerful tools that can help people. I just think that Western therapy is missing that very important ground that I can bring into. I'm not a, I'm not gonna I'm not a therapist. I'm not gonna say you know they're they're doing bad because I'm the therapist because I, I use the light a lot of that. But I do know that they're missing that indigenous knowledge that is very powerful, and we're introducing it through some of our young people who are becoming therapist and bringing in indigenous cosmology in that work as well. Well, it's, it's interesting because we, you know, in the mental health field, we do have music therapy and art therapy and journal writing. Those are things we use, but it's disconnected, I think, from the, and I'm saying spiritual, not as religious, but it's, it's disconnected in a way from its spiritual roots and um, so it's interesting. We do have pieces of it, but uh, your work really brings those those activities and those pieces to the forefront. Yeah, because it's soul work, and I call it soul work. And even the oh, I like that soul work. 
actually I do a soul talk. I call it soul talk. It's a place where your soul gets engaged and touched upon and dealt with and given space, and you're allowed to speak from that place instead of just you know in your head where you're you're trying to negotiate and navigate who you're talking to, who you're not, and you're lying over here, playing the game over here. You know, everybody does it. But get back to your soul. So it is soul work. And again, it's not a religious thing. I use indigenous cosmology, but I'm not trying to make Indians out of everybody. I'm just trying to get them to become more decent, more whole, more uh, complete human beings. And that's why all these things are powerful. All these tools are powerful. We just got to, that's the goal. How do you get that, that kind of wholeness with a lot of brokenness? So question for you, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist. I'm also from Spain. I should do full ownership here, full disclosure. Um, you know, I would feel ill-equipped to do a drumming circle, for example, even if I can recognize and appreciate the healing value of that work. How could therapists like me do a better job um, accessing that kind of activity for our clientele? Do we collaborate with people like you? How do we sort of link the medical model of mental health with the spiritual model of what you're talking about? That's the way to do it. Because I think there is issues of appropriation, as you know. Exactly. You want to be careful with that. So I'd say the idea is to bring in some of these indigenous elders, teachers who know this stuff, or begin to hire and or teach young Chicanas, indigenous people, you know, of all peoples come in there and carry some of this knowledge with them. So uh, I think opening those doors are really important and you can open those doors. That's that's important. Then you, and then if you do it, you're there in collaboration with people who are doing it. One of my teachers, believe it or not, is an Irish-American white guy, but he opened mm-hmm. to indigeneity, uh, not for him doing it, but he got to the point where now he's doing drumming, which African drumming with storytelling. But he does it because he respects the African drums. He works with African elders. You know what I'm saying? They gave yeah. that knowledge, and he uses it respectfully. There's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. And I knew, I know that I'm not a trained therapist, but I learned a few things about therapy, and I tried to introduce some therapeutic thinking, Western therapeutic thinking. I don't claim it. I'm not going to appropriate that either. You know, I'm not going to say something I'm not. Go to a real trained professional, you know. But I, I do think we can collaborate. We, I do collaborate with professionals in that field. I collaborate with all kinds of people so that we're all working together as community, community, cohesive community with different ways of speaking, not one modality, different modalities. And yeah. then together so that you're not appropriating, you're actually helping people. I, I think the mental health field would be well served in, you know, in embracing uh, more of more of that in our in our industry and in our practices, not by doing it ourselves, but by bringing in that expertise. I think that would um, make our care so much more powerful. You know, Luis, I always this is my thing because I'm a half glass full, three quarters full sort of person. That's how I roll. Um, so I always end these conversations on a note of hope. You have seen so much in your life and in your work. What gives you hope? Well, I do what people give me. Somebody had hope for me. I had no hope for me. Somebody saved me, but not they weren't saving me. They were giving me the tools, the resources, the connections to save myself. And so that's what I do. I got my son. He's 47 years old this year. He'll be 47. 
who went through all this. He's doing really good. We work together now. He's working mentoring other people. We're working for me incarcerated, but he's also helping me in all the work that I'm doing. You have to give hope to the capacity of humanity. Even this terrible thing with Ukraine and Russia, all, there's still human beings there, and they got great capacity, and you got to build on that. The terrible things that people do to, to each other is one thing, but we emphasize that too much. People should talk about the story of people who are really struggling, relating, resiliency, but also not just wanting, not just taking stuff, but also how do you thrive? And I think those are the stories that we need to tell more, and I'm willing to, to do that because I got many of them, more successes than losses. I have a lot of losses. And when all of us in this work, as you know, we have to learn how to deal with those losses. But we did. Much more great stories of change and, and transformation that I can hang on to. That's really beautiful. You know, I can tell even when you're casually speaking that you're a poet. Um, it comes, the poetry comes out even in your prose. And I just have appreciated this conversation so much. You have given me so much food for thought and you've really inspired me today. And I'm really grateful to you. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's about not taking the labels that others give you. You have to, again, by owning your life. So it goes like this. Piece by piece, they tear at you, peeling away layers of being, lying about who you are, speaking for your dreams. In the squalor of their eyes, you are an outlaw, dressing you in a jacket of lies, tater made in steel. Question the integrators, eyeball the death in their gaze. Say you won't succumb. Say you won't accept them when they re rename you. Say you won't accept their codes, their colors, their future morals. Here you have a way, here you can sing victory. Here you are not a conquered race, perpetual victim, a sullen face in the thunderstorm. Hands and minds, they are carving out a sanctuary. Use these weapons against them. Use your given gifts, they are not stolen. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.